thanks, Jeff, again for the welcome. And thank you to all of you for uh, the warm welcome that I've had over the past few Sundays of being here. Um, and uh, we're going to be finishing uh, our little look at First Peter this morning. So if you have your Bible again, I invite you to turn to First Peter chapter 4. And we're going to be reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Um, it's great to see so many people that actually follow the reading. Um, I speak in a number of different places, and it's not everywhere that, that everybody has a Bible with them. And uh, it's great to see the eagerness with which you're following what we're reading, what we're talking about, those of you taking notes and so on as well. There's no exams at the end of it. At least I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to be um, putting any exams on. Uh, the proof of all of this, of course, is how we allow the Lord to, to speak into our lives, to encourage us and to challenge us as we go through these chapters together. So chapter 4 and verse 12, and our theme today is the suffering of faithful exiles. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will, who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his, in, his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power and the glory forever. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. 
With the help of Silas, I, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And may God bless his word to us this morning. So we've been trying to look at this letter that uh, Peter wrote to scattered believers in the first century. Uh, I've been trying to give an overview of it in three parts. Um, the, first, the first week we thought about what Peter has to say about the identity of these people of God, We're calling them faithful exiles. The identity of faithful exiles. And we focused particularly in the sense of hope, the hope to which we're called as believers in the Lord Jesus. We thought about holiness, that we're called to holiness. And we're also given a call that honors us, that those whom the world would discount or discard, God honors and blesses them uh, by calling them his people, treasured possession. Last time we thought about the, the witness of the faithful exiles, quite a wide sweep of the, the middle sections of, of the letter. And we saw that basically we're called to stand out by the quality of our life. So we live in such a way that people will take notice and, and, and our light will shine before them. But also we're to stand firm under pressure. So we're to stand out by the quality of our lives. We're to stand firm under, our, un, under pressure. That's part of our witness as faithful exiles. And today we're thinking about the theme of suffering because faithful exiles are also called to suffer. Now, while I've put this as the, the header for the final section of our overview of the letter, uh, the theme of suffering actually runs all the way through it. If you go through the letter carefully, you'll see that in each of the five chapters that it's broken down in, uh, the letter's broken down in, each of the five chapters has some kind of reference to suffering or trials. But we're going to think about how uh, suffering comes into focus in this final section. Now, it's not something that we probably like to think about too much. We don't like to think about suffering at all. And we maybe don't think an awful lot about suffering as Christians. We've not had to face it very acutely in the part of the world where most of us have grown up. But as we're going to see in a moment or two, it is a reality. And it's a painful reality for many of our brothers and sisters. And I think that's already been referred to in earlier parts of our time together this morning. Now, as we think about suffering, I want us to think about four reactions that we might have to suffering. There are actually things that really the letter cautions us to move away from. And the first reaction that we might have but we're not to have is we are not to be surprised by suffering. Look again at verse 12. Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised by it. Now, if it was possibly a surprise to the people that, P that Peter was writing to in the first century, I think that for many of us in the, this, this time of history, uh, in the Western world, many of us contemporary Western Christians, it comes as a surprise to us to think that we might suffer as Christians. We might suffer for following Jesus. Because we live in a culture that for many, many years, centuries, has been shaped by Christianity. 
And I think we've probably, many of us at least, have been almost lulled into a, a false sense of security where we assume that suffering and difficulties are somehow unusual for Christians. And I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One, I think, has to do with an imbalance in our, in our teaching, the teaching that we listen to. Now, some of the more extreme examples of that are folk that we call prosperity preachers. They, they're on the television. You can get them on the internet. You can find their books. And, and basically, the message is often there that, well, it's God's will to bless you materially. And he will bless you with good health. He will bless you with wealth. And some of these individuals who uh, teach like this well, they fly around in their private jets and, and, and so on. Um, and even, but even if we don't go to that extent, which I think it obviously doesn't tally with the New Testament, I think sometimes we are infiltrated by more subtle forms of that, where we kind of think, well, that God exists to comfort us, that God exists to keep us comfortable. Yes, he exists to comfort us, but that's not the same as God existing to keep us comfortable. And we think that somehow when a difficulty comes along, well, all we've got to do is ask God and he'll take the difficulty away. And we're, we're lulled into this false sense of security and thinking that when suffering happens, there's something badly wrong, that maybe God is not in control anymore. Or it's, the world has got out of his control. There's an imbalance in our teaching. But I think also we, we are surprised by it because we think that our time and our place are the norm. So uh, here in the Western world, it's been shaped by, by so, uh, so much by Christianity, uh, we think that that's what it's normally like. But of course, we've only got to look around us at the wider world. We've already been reminded about it this morning. We've only got to look uh, around us a little bit more to, to realize that we are actually part of a family that suffers. If you go across to chapter 5 and verse 9, Peter says there we're to resist the devil because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. We're part of a family that suffers. And just because we may not know the most acute forms of suffering for being Christians in this part of the world doesn't mean it's happening. In the history of the church, it didn't take long for the church to face persecution initially from the Jews who persecuted them, and then from the Romans. And down through history, many of our brothers and sisters have paid for their loyalty to Christ with their lives. Today, some people are martyred. Some people are in prison. Some people are prevented from evangelizing. Some people are treated as second-class citizens. Some people are forced to flee from their homes and flee from their countries. Open Doors, who no doubt many of you are familiar with, who work so closely with the persecuted church around the world, reckon that about one Christian in seven globally face persecution. One in seven. We may not be among that, that number who face persecution, but an awful lot of our brothers and sisters around the world are. We're part of a family that suffers. And we also follow a Savior who suffered. And that's what Peter goes on to say in verse 13. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, it's important for us to realize something here. There is something 
about the sufferings of Christ, which is absolutely unique. We have remembered his death for us today as we've taken bread and as we've taken the cup together. We've, we've, we've remembered his sufferings. And those sufferings are unique. He is the only one who could have suffered in that way to bring about our forgiveness. And those sufferings, because they're unique, will never need to be repeated by anyone. But there's another sense in which we participate in the sufferings of Christ. Because just as he suffered in a world which ultimately rejected him, so if we follow him, we share in his sufferings when we too taste the rejection of the same world. But you notice that as Christ's suffering was part of his path to glory, so that prospect is held out for suffering Christians. You can rejoice in the prospect, Peter says. So the first thing is, that when, when suffering happens, suffering for following Jesus, we must not be surprised by it. We are part of a family who suffers, and we follow a Savior who suffered. The second thing, really from verse 13 to verse 19, is that we are not to be ashamed of it. Now, you'll notice that Peter refers to a kind of suffering uh, that is connected with shame, and it's suffering which comes because we've done something wrong. Uh, Peter mentions murder or theft, uh, extends it to uh, other kinds of behavior, um, but uh, he, he picks out those, those examples. And you could understand how suffering for those things would make you ashamed. Let's imagine you go back to your school days and you've been found guilty of some terrible offense, you know, copying your homework or, or something like that. Uh, and in the days when schools were maybe very strict in terms of discipline, you get par paraded to the headmaster's office, the head teacher's office. And people see you sitting outside the head teacher's office as they walk past and they go, oh, I wonder what you did to be sitting there. You must be in trouble. And there's a certain embarrassment that probably comes from it. So there are times when we've done something wrong, uh, we're, we're found out for it, and it is right to be ashamed because of that. But Peter says, if you, if you suffer because of the cause of Christ, that is not a reason for you to be ashamed. Now, some of Peter's readers may have felt shame. Perhaps they were being ridiculed. Perhaps there's social exclusion. None of us likes that. And perhaps there's a sense of shame at being the odd one out. But Peter says that to suffer for Jesus is not a cause of shame. It's a cause of rejoicing. He says, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We, 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 we rejoice because we've got the privilege of sharing in Christ's suffering, even if it brings us shame, uh, the shame of ridicule or the shame of exclusion. He also says that if you are insulted, verse 14, because of the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Suffering for Christ is not a sign that God has abandoned you. And if it's something that maybe some of you are facing, not in an extreme way, but you're facing a sense of being excluded by others or being ridiculed by others because of your loyalty to Jesus, 
It's not a sign that God has abandoned you or left you. Peter says, the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Of course, verse 15, as long as you're suffering for doing what is right and not doing what is wrong. And he talks about this name, Christian, in verse 16. And you maybe know that the, the word Christian only, only occurs three times in the New Testament. The first time it's in Acts chapter 11, where the Christians are, the believers are first called Christians at Antioch. Uh, the second time is in Acts chapter 26, where you've got Paul and he's challenging King Agrippa uh, with the gospel. Do you believe the prophets, he says to him? And Agrippa says, do you think you're going to persuade me so quickly to become a Christian? And here Peter uses it. And it seems like it was a, almost a nickname that was used by, by some of the people who observed these people who were so closely identified with Christ that called them Christians. And Peter says, if you suffer because that's the name that you bear, then there is no need for you to be ashamed. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be ashamed of it. And he talks about how God is, is coming in, in judgment. Uh, he's coming to, to test and refine his own people and he's coming in judgment against those who do not obey the gospel. And he says in verse 19, if you're suffering according to God's will, commit yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. So don't be, don't be surprised by it. Don't be ashamed of it if it happens. And the third thing is don't be derailed by it. In the midst of this suffering, which is all through the letter, these exiles, in the midst of this suffering, God's work still needs to go on. Now, we've seen how that happens, how that operates on the, at the individual level. Continue to do good. Witness by the quality of your life. We've seen that. We saw that last week. But beyond just what happens at the individual level, we see that the church needs to keep going. And if the church is going to keep going, it needs to be cared for, and the responsibility primarily for, for caring for the church falls on the shoulders of the elders. So in the midst of all of this, Peter says to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share the glory to be revealed. And he, he addresses these elders as to what they're to do. And he says, he talks to them about their task. He talks to them about their motivation, and he talks to them about their reward. Now, the task of leadership will always be important, but perhaps it's even more important when the times are difficult. When the times are difficult, the church needs to be carefully watched over. The church needs to be carefully guarded and carefully protected, and the task falls to the elders. Notice how he describes their task. He says, your task is to be shepherds of God's flock. Now, Peter's already referred to Jesus himself as the shepherd and as the overseer of our souls. He'll describe him in verse 4 as the chief shepherd. And of course, we know that he's the good shepherd. And the whole idea of shepherding and the Lord shepherding his people is a big theme throughout Scripture. And you know, I think it's not surprising that Peter talks about this language of shepherding when he talks about elders. It's got echoes, hasn't it, of that very famous story. It's a story that I love, uh, where, where, which comes at the end of John's gospel, where Peter is restored by Jesus after his denials. 
And they're there on the beach and they've been, they've been trying to fish and they haven't caught anything. And Jesus tells them where to put out their nets and they realize that it's Jesus. And they come to the beach and they find there's a barbecue, there's a charcoal fire that's burning and Jesus has been cooking fish on the barbecue beside the Sea of Galilee. And at the end of it, Jesus takes Peter for a little walk along the beach and he says, Peter, do you love me? Asks him three times. And then he says to Peter, Peter, I want you to be a shepherd of my people. It's interesting, isn't it, that he starts out as a fisherman, then he becomes a fisher of men, and now he becomes a shepherd. And that responsibility that Peter is given by Jesus is a responsibility that he recognizes in the, in the, in the ministry of these elders in the churches that he's writing to. As he has been given the task of shepherding, so he says to these people, I want you to shepherd the flock. Now, there's different words that are used for, for leaders in churches. Uh, sometimes it's the word elders, as is used here. Sometimes the word overseers is used. Um, and uh, it, those, those words that are used are in, in contemporary times are, are used in different ways, depending on people's church tradition. But if elders suggests that there's a seniority or a maturity in the leadership, I think shepherding and overseeing have to do with the task. And shepherding and overseeing the work of elders means leading and feeding and protecting the flock. And that is a task that calls for both courage and compassion. So their task is to shepherd the flock. So much more that could be said about that. But we'll look on at what he says about their motivation. He says three things about their motivations. There's three parallel pairs, if you will. Uh, he says in verse 2, be shepherds of the flock that's under your care, not because you must, be, but because you're willing. You don't do it because somebody's twisted your arm up your back. You do it willingly because you believe that God's calling you to do this. Secondly, he goes on and says in verse, in the, uh, in, also in, in the same verse, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. So don't do it for financial gain but be eager to serve. Now, there's evidence in the New Testament that some of the elders received material support in return for the work that they did. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it becomes wrong when an elder says, ooh, that could be a good way for me to get rich. I remember hearing a story about the treasurer of a church. I'm sure it's not true, but treasurer of a church. And he'd been treasurer for years. And uh, at the end, he was re retiring from having been treasurer and he said, I've really enjoyed my time as treasurer of, of, of the church here. I've always got a lot more out of it than I ever put into it. <laughs> that is not a motivation. That is not a motivation to be, uh, to be a, a church leader. And I think in our context, for, for most of us in this part of the world, uh, being an elder is unlikely to be a source of, of great wealth. But there are places where it is or where it seems to be. And I think it, actually if we leave money out of it, there's something deeper, isn't there? There's a motivation of, well, what's in it for me? See, there's a motivation of compulsion. Well, somebody forced me to do this, so I'd, so I'd better do it. don't really want to. But there's also a motivation of, whoa, I wonder what I can get from this. And if it's not money, it may be status or it may be power. And those things can be power and money. Power and, and status can be just as intoxicating as money. So don't do it because you have to, but do it because you want to. Don't do it for financial gain, but do it because you're eager to serve. And then thirdly, he says, 
Don't do it by domineering, not lording it over, verse 3, those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Being an elder is not about wielding power and letting everybody know who's in charge. You know, one of the terms that's come into uh, the language in, in, in really just in, in recent years is spiritual abuse. And there are stories of church leaders who said, well, we're the ones in charge. And there's that old adage, it's not, it's not a particularly biblical adage, but I don't think it's, it's against the, what, what Scripture says. But the old adage that power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. How many leaders, how many people have become elders in churches and leaders in churches? And the power has gone to their head and they have abused power and people have been hurt. And Peter says, do not lead in that way. Get your motivation right. Do this willingly, not because someone's compelled you. Do this eagerly, to, eagerness, out of eagerness to serve, not for what you get from it. And don't do it because you're going to be able to exercise power over people. Spiritual leadership, he says, has to do with being an example to the flock. Be examples to the flock, he says. It's about getting on with a faithful, godly life so that you can actually set an example for other people that other people will want to follow. And then there's a reward, isn't there? There's a crown of glory. And the chief shepherd, when he appears, there will be this. It's interesting he's the chief shepherd, isn't it? None of the men here who are elders in this church is the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd is the Lord Jesus. And any shepherding has to come under the authority of the chief shepherd. And shepherd, shepherding that is carried out under the, the leadership of the Lord Jesus and following the example of the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, will be rewarded when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So don't be derailed by suffering. Don't be surprised by it when it happens. Don't be ashamed if you're suffering because of the name of Christ. Don't be derailed by it. Let the church keep going. Let the elders keep eldering. And then the final thing is, don't be discouraged by it. There are three things to notice. First, he talks about uh, the need to submit to God. He talks about humility in verse 5 and talks about how God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Therefore, he says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Now, I wonder what that's got to do with suffering. What has it got to do with the context here in the, in the book? Well, Peter's readers are uh, experiencing trials. They're in exile. Some of them are maybe victims of false accusations. Some of them maybe find themselves working for masters who treat them unkindly and unfairly. Some of them are women who are married to men who don't share their faith. Peter says, even if you're suffering, keep doing good. Even if you've been treated badly, keep doing good. Even if you're being slandered, keep doing good. Christ suffered for the, un the, the just for the unjust, so don't be surprised if following him means you suffer too. Some of the purpose of suffering from what Peter says, is 
is a purification that happens, that God uses our trials and our tests to purify us and to strengthen our faith. And that's something that we maybe find ourselves wanting to kick back against. And I think back to the Old Testament, I think back to the exiles who were in Babylon uh, and, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's letter to them. And he eventually, he, 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 uh, God sends a letter through Jeremiah that they're going to be there for 70 years and then God's going to bring them back. But in the run-up to all of that, those people were resisting. Jeremiah's message was, Jerusalem's going to fall, you're going to go into exile in Babylon. And these people are saying, this is never going to happen. It couldn't possibly happen. And Jeremiah says, it is. And the way actually that you're going to, the way that you're going to survive it is by surrendering, not by trying to fight and try to fight against the Babylonians, but by surrendering. And I wonder if that helps us to understand what this means. Here are these people in these difficult circumstances. And Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. He will lift you up again in due time. And then that wonderful thing that he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now take that for a moment. Take it for yourself for a moment. What makes you anxious? What maybe makes you anxious right now at this very present moment? What aspect of following Jesus is making you anxious? Is there something about the week that lies ahead or the next few weeks? Is there something that makes you anxious? Peter says, cast all of your anxiety on him, all of it. Let it go. Because he cares for you. Those are some of the most precious words in Scripture. He cares for you. One of the translations is the J.B. Phillips translation that some of you will remember from years ago. It says in this in verse 7, you can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him for you are his personal concern. Don't be discouraged by suffering. Submit to God. Secondly, verse 8 to 10, resist the devil. Because while God can be at work in trials to purify us and to strengthen our faith, at the same time, the devil can be at work in our trials. And his goal is the destruction of the people of God. So we're to humble ourselves under God's hand, but we're to resist the devil, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the whole world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And then finally, we're to stand firm in God's grace. The God of all grace will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And Peter signs off in these last few verses. And I, notice, I want you to notice particularly what he says in, in verse uh, 12. He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You don't need another message. The gospel has enough to allow you to stand firm. Submit to God, resist the devil, stand firm in God's grace. So when suffering comes, 
we must not be surprised by it. If we find ourselves suffering because we bear the name Christian, we must not be ashamed by it. If suffering comes, we must not be derailed by it. And if suffering comes, we should not be discouraged by it. God is still in control, and he urges us to stand firm in his grace. And so let's pray. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.